And then, Father, turning our heart and our mind toward the Word of God before us, we thank you, Lord, that we have a chance to study a book like Isaiah, to come to it in a serious purpose and devoted effort to understand it, not in our own power, Father, relying instead on the Spirit, and yet diligent and dedicated and attentive, Father. We ask that our hearts and and minds would be focused tonight, that we may learn something that you could put to use in our life to glorify you. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we're at chapter 6. We're done with the introduction. We're going to move beyond it into the book proper. Few chapters in Scripture are better known than Isaiah 6. You may not even realize it, but you've probably sung part of Isaiah 6 in a worship service at some point. Uh, Some of these verses are just that familiar. And we're going to look at it in depth tonight and go beyond it. We've said, I think, in the past, Isaiah had a singularly important ministry in the Old Testament, arguably the most important prophet. Perhaps if you consider Moses a prophet, which the Jews, of course, do, then he might be second to Moses. But in any event, very important. And unlike anyone else, perhaps only equaled by Moses, he saw God's complete plan to a large degree. And he reveals a good part of it right now in chapter 6. As he begins the book proper, we're going to see this famous chapter where Isaiah receives his calling and his commissioning as a prophet through a vision here, some kind of vision which he sees. And in this chapter, we're going to see uh, one of the the more important places you can go in Scripture to understand how God in his wisdom has knit together uh, an entire, uh, several millennia of human history to meet his ultimate plan here. It's just, it's, the wisdom of God just becomes so evident in this chapter and what he reveals to Isaiah. If you remember Revelation chapter 4, John has the vision of the throne room after he relates the letters to the churches that Christ gives him. In fact, in Revelation 4, John says, I was taken up. I saw a door open into heaven and I was taken up. Now, what that actually means, you know, we're never sure. Was it entirely a vision subconscious, unconscious kind of thing? Or did he physically move? We don't know. And it doesn't really matter. In some similar way, Isaiah is going to relate in chapter 6 a vision. Something he was privy to. God opened a door in his mind or in his presence and he showed him things that few mortals have ever seen short of heaven being their home. And as a result, uh, it's one of the strangest, maybe certainly one of the most intriguing scenes in Scripture And it leads to what has to be one of the most intriguing missions in the history of missions ever given to any human being. With that introduction, let's look at chapter 6, verse 1 through 7. It opens, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of His robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above Him, each having six wings, With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. So, with that remarkable opening. Now, how many of you recognize some of those verses from something you've sung on a Sunday morning, maybe? Or you've heard sung, certainly? It's a scene of Scripture that is famous, and as such, it became something of an opportunity for those who wanted to write songs praising the Lord. They take from this scene the praise of those creatures. How many of you realized as you were singing songs like the one that's often sung with these words, that what you're repeating are the words of creatures with six wings, as they're described here? He introduces his vision here with a date, which will become very important as we come out of this teaching toward the end of tonight. The date of the year of King Uzziah's death. Now, King Uzziah is an interesting character in in Scripture all by himself. He's a powerful man. He brought great prosperity to Israel. 
he was probably the best king all around since Solomon in the time after the kingdom split. So for the southern kingdom, he was a high point after the split of the kingdom. Unfortunately, his last years in office, if you will, or in power, were marked by leprosy, which was brought upon him as judgment from God because of his pride. I'm just going to read you a short passage out of Second Chronicles where we see this taking place. Uh, just in reading it, and not necessarily any more than that, you just get a good sense of Uzziah as a man. Chapter 26 of Second Chronicles, verse 15. In Jerusalem, this is speaking of King Uzziah, he made engines of war invented by skillful men to be on the towers and on the corners for the purpose of shooting arrows and great stones. Hence his fame spread afar, for he was marvelously helped until he was strong. But when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly, and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. For he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Then Azariah the priest entered after him with eighty priests of the Lord, valiant men. They opposed Uzziah the king and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the son of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful and will have no honor from the Lord God. But Uzziah, with a censer in his hand for burning incense, was enraged. And while he was enraged with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord, besides the altar of incense. Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous on his forehead. And they hurried him out of there. And he himself also hastened to get out, because the Lord had smitten him. King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and he lived in a separate house being a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. And Jotham, his son, was over the king's house judging the people of the land. Interesting story, isn't it? Josephus actually records the same account in, in his history of the Jews. And he says this, In the meantime, he says, at this moment, a great earthquake shook the ground and a rent, meaning a, a, a hole, was made in the temple. This is the stone temple of Solomon. And bright rays of sun shone through it and fell on the king's face insomuch that the leprosy seized upon him immediately. Now, is that true? We don't know. But it's interesting that he adds that detail. For if that were true, what a dramatic moment. He's in there about to do the wrong thing. The priests stand up to him and then, and then he's leprous. Tells you something about God being present in his, among his people in that day. Well, he died in 742 B.C., and we'll hold that thought because that date becomes important later. And, and this vision of Isaiah is dated to 742 B.C. It makes sense to conclude that Isaiah experienced this vision at the start of his ministry, for after all, it is a commissioning. It is an establishing of him for ministry. That would mean that he would have received the words of chapter 6 prior to what he wrote in, verse, in chapters 1 through 5. That, in other words, when he later sat down and wrote the book, he wrote 1 through 5 to introduce his entire work. And as such, it reads like an introduction, a kind of summary of the book. Then he gets to chapter 6, and now he tells you about how the whole thing started. So these events were probably the very first events for him in terms of his ministry. He describes a vision here of the Lord. The word for Lord in Hebrew is Adonai. He says he is seated on a throne, both exalted and lifted up. Those are the most literal ways to translate the Hebrew. Exalted and lifted up. The train of his robe filling the temple. Angelic beings standing above him. These are the ones with the six wings. And they're calling holy three times. This is all similar to another vision. You all know of another time in Scripture where a very similar scene is related by a man? I've already mentioned it, actually. John in Revelation 4. But I'll read you the three verses in 4 that cover the same thing. Look how similar these two are, which would tell you, of course, that they're looking at exactly the same thing. One just at a different time than the other. Revelation 4, 6. Also before the throne, there, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. And the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. These four creatures exist to produce this praise to the throne 
and apparently serve God in other ways to include taking tongs of, of burning coal wherever they need to, I guess, from time to time. But they seem to play a, a ministerial role around the throne. Isaiah, in his vision, hears the voice of the Lord and he trembles and he declares that as an unclean man, he's, quote, ruined for having been in the presence of the Lord of hosts and to have seen the Lord of hosts. And now there's several things to talk about here. First, I want you to consider his reaction here. And, and consider it in this way. Consider it as an opportunity for us to get a sense of what fear of the Lord really looks like. Because we like to compare ourselves to something we can relate to in order to gain some kind of appreciation for ourselves of our own worth. And as it would happen, we tend to find people who are always of less stature than ourselves. And when we come out of that a comparison process, we almost inevitably come out feeling pretty good about ourselves. Because it seems like we can always find someone to compare ourselves to who leave us feeling better. And it can be on any level. Financially, appearance, social skills, family situations, health. In pharisaical terms, the way it's related in the Gospels about the Pharisee who stands and prays and says, thank you God that I'm not like that sinner. We have a tendency to do that without realizing it, right? We, we just naturally look around ourselves in our life and we feel better when we find someone who doesn't compare as well on terms we define on things we prefer to measure with, right? And that's, that's a part of the ego, that's part of the pride of, of, of men to do that. Here you see Isaiah in a situation where he doesn't have anything to compare himself to apart from God himself. Which is interesting because that means he is actually using the one and only right standard on which measurement has any eternal meaning, any real purpose. If you compare yourself to anything short of God, you've got a comparison that is meaningless in the long run, although it makes you feel good for now. He's got a point where he's got no choice but to compare himself to the holy standard of God in his presence. And in the process of making that comparison, he comes away with this impression of himself, I'm ruined, meaning I can't stand, I can't exist in this comparison. That's what we mean when we say the fear of God. There is a tendency to push that thought aside in our present day, and we talk more about the loving Father, which is true, but to the exclusion of the fear of God. Scripture doesn't do that. Scripture uses the fear of God as much as it does anything else to describe how we should see God, what a reverent understanding of God is. The fear is not because he is capricious or un unpredictable in some way or, or certainly not because he's cruel. It's a reflection of our natural standing before a holy God. There is nothing but fear to result from us standing in God's presence in our current sinful state. That's the only natural reaction. One of the reasons why you see men and women in Scripture always reacting in fear to an angelic being, all the more so to God himself. I bring that to mind in part because it's a healthy reminder as you come to moments like this in Scripture to keep a, a personal perspective that is consistent with the scriptural way men are seen when confronted with God's holiness. Nothing but abject fear and ruin. Now, grace covers that, which is the, good, the other side of the story for us as believers but grace, without an appreciation of God's justice, is kind of cheap grace, as it sometimes is called. It leaves you forgetting what grace has done. Remove that fear of eternal condemnation. The Bible consistently teaches this principle. God's holiness is so unapproachable from those who have sin that it places anyone who has sin in mortal danger if they enter His presence. And the reason for that, I believe, is that God's righteous nature compels him to bring judgment against sin. So that if sin enters his presence and he is to look upon it and not judge it, he's not being true to his character. That would be equivalent to a judge learning of a man's guilt in his courtroom and then deciding not to punish him. God, being perfect in character and nature, can't help but do the right thing. And the right thing when confronted with sin is judge it. The best he can do for us is delay that decision by not putting us in his presence until a time when there is a covering available. And in fact, let me give you a couple verses just to illustrate that. Exodus 33:18. Moses wants to see God's glory. You remember that scene? Let me read you a few verses of that moment. Exodus 33:18. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. And I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. 
And then that's the reason Paul says in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 6.13, as he talks to Timothy at the end of that first letter, he says, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Jesus Christ, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which He, meaning the Father, will bring about at the proper time. He, who is the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light where no man has seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. So Paul reiterates what God himself said in Exodus about himself. No one can see the Father and live. That's 1 Timothy 6, 13 and onward. So, of course, now that begs a big question in this moment, doesn't it? How is it that Isaiah can say he saw the Lord? Well, I want you to first remember a couple things. First, remember the scene around the throne here is not something a man is prohibited from seeing. The creatures, the robe, all of the stuff there, that's not off limits. So there's nothing wrong with that part of the scene. The issue is what he saw in terms of the person on the throne. The Father's face is the thing that cannot be seen. So in this case, we know he did not see the Father's face. So when he says, I saw the Lord lifted, exalted, who's he talking about? Well, John's Gospel gives us the answer. John chapter 12 36, 1236 in John's Gospel. This is Jesus speaking. He says, While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke, and He went away and He hid Himself from them. But though He had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in Him. And then it goes on to say, This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet which He spoke. Now jump down to verse 41. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Who is he in this case? Jesus. Who is Isaiah looking at in chapter 6? Christ, the incarnate one of the Godhead. That's why Paul says in Colossians 1.15, 1.15 of Colossians, Christ Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews in his first chapter, in that famous opening set of verses in Hebrews 1, 3, in describing Jesus, he says, He is the radiance of His or the Father's glory and the exact representation of the Father's nature. The word exact representation in the Greek, it's literally the word that means a stamped image on a coin. You know, if you have the face of someone on a coin, Jesus is the face of God stamped out for us to see so that we could have God visible to us. So, Isaiah is seeing Christ in this vision. He mentions his sinfulness, and then he says, my lips are unclean. Now, why does he focus on that? I mean, is it the only part of him that he's got a problem with? Clearly not. But why do you think the first thing that came to his mind in the midst of this scene is, I have unclean lips? What would have prompted him to come to that thought? He's watching this scene, he's watching these creatures, what are they doing? They're praising God out of their mouth, right? Again, God's holiness makes your own sinfulness utterly obvious to yourself. And if these creatures are clearly in the mode or in the role of a continuous, nonstop praise, what that leaves the sinful man in awareness of is how much of what comes out of their mouth is not such. And that's, I think, a way of him localizing his sin. It's not the extent of his sin. It's just the beginning of it. In response to that guilt, curiously, one of these winged creatures... They take this burning coal. It not, notably, it comes from beneath the altar. Did that cause you to raise an eyebrow? There's an altar in heaven. What's an altar for? There's only one purpose for an altar. Only one. Sacrifice. The altar is a place of sacrifice. So there's a place in heaven for sacrifice. And what sacrifice is this altar intended for? Hebrews 9 tells us that this is the true altar of which there is a copy in the tabernacle on earth. The one we have given to, to Moses is a copy of things in heaven. The one in heaven is the real one. We just have an imitation down here that pictures the real one. But the real altar that God has in His presence is one designed for a single sacrifice, a once-for-all sacrifice. And when there is a, a certain blood poured out on this altar, it atones for all sin for all time. This is the altar on which Christ's own blood is poured out after He ascends. 
After the ascension, this is where the blood sacrifice of Christ is literally poured out. The real literal moment of atonement happened in the same way that God appointed for Moses and the Israelites to mimic it. They had to take the bowl, the laver that had the blood in it, go to the altar and pour it out on the altar. That's the moment where atonement actually took place. Similarly, that's all picturing what God does once for all through Christ's blood. Christ spilled his blood on the altar in heaven. That's what Hebrews 9 describes. There's also a few other places in Scripture where you can see that alluded to. The fact that it exists at all is proof that there has to be a sacrifice. Going along with that, this is not a place where there's continuous sacrifice. Hebrews makes that same point. This is not a place where you see animals getting sacrificed. That's all what goes on in the earthly sense to picture something. So by the time Isaiah is here, at this moment, Christ has not yet died. He has not yet done the sacrifice on the altar. So there has not yet been an atonement for man's sin made on the one altar where it can be made. It still awaits for a future day. So at this point, it is not possible yet for God to remove Isaiah's sin. The removal of sin is a function exclusively of Christ's atoning work and the blood of Christ washing sin. The best that can be done at this point is only a covering for sin. There is no blood sufficient, avail, sufficiently available to remove Isaiah's sin, so the only thing left at this point is something that can atone or temporarily cover sin. They're not going to get blood from some other source. They're not cutting open bulls and goats in heaven. That's just done on earth. You've got no blood. So they go to the altar because that's still the place at which atonement is made. And they take fire from the, from the altar as opposed to blood. And they use fire, God uses fire in this case, to cleanse Isaiah. But no more or less than they used blood with bulls and goats in Moses' day. It was an atonement, a temporary covering for sin. And it was not based on the premise that that alone could absolve men of sin. It was rather a picture of what Christ would do ultimately in heaven. And in a limited temporary way, it showed faith. It showed, as an example, faith in men to follow the, the, the law as prescribed and receive a temporary covering. He's giving Isaiah the kind of cleansing that the high priest, for example, would gain for himself before he walked into the Holy of Holies once a year and performed that one-time sacrifice for the sake of Israel. And the creature says, your iniquity is taken away. The word for iniquity in Hebrew is just guilt. Your guilt is taken away. And then secondly, your sin is forgiven. The word forgiven is kafar in Hebrew, which is the word for covering. Anybody know what the word is that's used in Genesis to describe the, 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 the pitch that's put on the outside of the ark by Noah? Kafar. It's a play on words. God uses atonement to cover the boat, the ship, which is itself a picture of Christ, right? So the atonement on the ship causes it to float on the judgment waters of God. So it's a picture of how God's covering atonement keeps you out of judgment. From this state of temporary atonement, Isaiah receives his commissioning. Let's go to that. Verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And whom will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. He said, Go and tell this people. Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive. Their ears dull. Their eyes dim. Otherwise... They might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Now, I have a reason for doing this. I want you to look at these verses backwards just for a moment, because the last part of what he said is a fairly straightforward piece to understand. It's the first part that's so difficult. In the very end, say from about verse 11 on, when Isaiah says, how long is this going to go on? God says... I have a purpose in your ministry that will arrive at the nation of Israel devastated, the land empty. Now, we know already from his introduction, see, this is why I think he gave the introduction to his book, to help understand, to help explain a little bit why his commission is so odd. We know from the earlier chapters already what happens to Israel as a result of their sin under the covenant. They're scattered. 
Their land is taken over by Gentile nations who trample it and kick them out. That's consistent with verse 11. I mean, you know it now because of the introduction. You can put the two together. Verses 12 and onward, he talks about there will be a tenth portion. That's the remnant that he's already described. This idea that God will always keep some small portion of Israel alive and well somewhere in the world so that he can continue to work through that nation. So there's your reference to a remnant, a promise for a remnant to remain. But then he adds this interesting little footnote at the end. He says, it will again be subject to burning. What is it? The remnant. So there is a future time, I mean this comes at the end here so it seems to be sequential to some extent, a scattering, a remnant, but then at some point later this remnant will again be subject to burning. I think that's euphemistic. I think it's meant to suggest God's ire, his judgment, his anger, his wrath. So even the remnant's not going to be preserved indefinitely. They they themselves come under God's judgment one last time. What does that refer back to from what we've already looked at? Tribulation. With what Isaiah has revealed in the first five chapters, the things start to fall in place in your mind pretty easily. He's being told here, take this message to Israel. Its effect is not going to be to turn them toward me, but intentionally to keep them away from me. And that is a part of a long process, Isaiah, a process of scattering, of judgment that ultimately ends up on a future day in this focused judgment against them, against this holy seed, this stump, this leftover remnant. So he lays it out in this very broad way, very general way. But again, with the introduction already in our pocket, we we see the picture here pretty clearly. We understand what he's saying is going to happen. Let's just look at it from top down now. The Lord asks this fantastic question, and I guess the, the class clown in me starts to read these early verses and just starts to imagine what was actually going on when he when you see this moment, because his vision here is truly special. He's seen the Messiah on his throne. He's heard the revelation of the Trinity. I mean, it says there in the verses we read, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? He's the only Old Testament prophet that got a clear appreciation of the Trinity in, his, in the course of his ministry. So here he is seeing the, the, uh, the Trinity. He sees these creatures. And then in the midst of all this, there's this question. Whom will go for us? Whom shall we send? I have one of two ways to imagine this, both of which make me chuckle. I don't know if either one's accurate. One of the two ways is, Isaiah, I think, responds here eagerly. You know, the kind of, oh, oh, pick me, pick me, pick me, pick me. What makes this so funny is, who else is there? It's just him. So God's sitting there saying, I wonder who's going to go for us. And here's Isaiah going, me, 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 me. And there's this pause like, you know, well, just pick him. He's the only guy. Just get it over with. That's why he's here, right? The whole idea of him asking a question to the one guy that's there for that obvious reason is just funny to me. Why would you ask the question? And, and Isaiah just, oh, hey, I'm here, I'm here, like he had to ask. You know, like he even had to volunteer. But he did. The other way I see it is the opposite, totally opposite. God set this whole scene up. He's terrified. He's scared. He doesn't even know really why he's there. God says, whom was going to go for us? And looks at Isaiah, and Isaiah's like, I guess I'll go, you know. I'm the only one here. I guess that means it's me. In either way, and I don't know whether either one is accurate, of course, if they're mostly facetious. But either way, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So... God wanted or needed Isaiah here to vocalize his willingness to be this prophet, to serve in this capacity. And once he opened his mouth and he voiced his willingness, he was a prophet for life. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So his commissioning now is assured. He's, I think that may be part of the reason why it's asked as a question. You know, we often talk about the fact that the gospel goes out as an invitation and people receive it, yet we know God's sovereign work in that is unquestionable. So then it begs the question, why do you even need to ask a question then? Why do you even have to persuade the unbeliever if God's in control? Well, the fact that God is in control doesn't alleviate the importance of a commitment on the part of the person being brought into the relationship because of how it affects your willingness to serve, if nothing else. And I think that's a part of what's going on here. Isaiah is going to go out from this moment having made a personal statement to God face-to-face that he's going to do what God's asked him to do. I think that changes to some extent our uh, steadfastness in the course of our mission. Uh, So he's commissioning now. Quite unusual. He gets a mission destined to failure. In in a sense, destined to failure. 100% guaranteed. Of all the missions ever been handed out to anyone in mission work, he got the one nobody would want. He got the one that said, go out and tell the people, meaning Israel, keep on listening, keep on looking, meaning at the prophets and at God's word generally, continue to give your attention to God, But, 
Don't let these messengers, the prophets, nor their message penetrate your understanding. From Isaiah's point of view, continue to be a mouthpiece for God. Get their attention. Get them to listen to you. In other words, don't say to yourself what I think Christians may do on occasion. Well, if God's in control of everything, He doesn't need me. And I don't need to be saying anything. I don't need to be going out. Because after all, He'll do what He wants without me. God has said to Isaiah, keep on going out so that they'll hear you and see you. But understand the outcome of this is going to be, I'm rendering their hearts insensitive. Insensitive is in in Hebrew, it's shaman. It means to grow fat, literally. It, It doesn't resonate any longer. It's just noise. And dull ears, that reflects the same, right? I'm not really paying attention. Dim eyes. To me, the sense there is, I hear what you're saying, Isaiah, but none of it really makes any sense to me. In simple words, my language here, numb these people with your words until they stop listening to you. Great! (laughs) Where do I sign up for that? That is fantastic work. I can't wait to get started. What an incredible ministry. Doesn't that just beg huge questions for us all? Why? Obviously, if they listen... Now, here's the argument. Here's what God's about to explain out of Scripture. If they were to listen to Isaiah, let's just ask the question from that point of view. Isaiah goes out. He says the same words. But now, instead of ignorance and their lack of interest in what he says, let's say, for example, instead, they hear him, they listen, they like it, and they respond. Which would mean repent, and then come back and ask forgiveness from God. What if they were to do that? If they seek forgiveness, God is obligated to receive them and provide that forgiveness. Now, why am I saying that? He said, render their hearts insensitive in verse 10, their ears dull, their eyes dim, and so on. Otherwise, they might see. Otherwise, if you don't do this, if we're not able to pull this off, Isaiah, the problem is, what if they actually pay attention and they come back to me? What would that have to be then? Look, verse 10 at the end. They would return and they'd be healed. Wow, we don't want that. It's just strange, isn't it? If I'm Isaiah, I don't just say, well, how long do you want me to do this? I say, before we go down that road, I've got to ask you a few questions about this plan. I don't think we want it to work. I thought the whole point was that they would return to you. What's God up to here? What's the plan? Well, this, this is where it's going to take us out of Isaiah. We've gone through the chapters, you can see. The point of the chapter is this question. Why did he get this commission? And if you think about what a commission leads to, it also explains his whole book. Why does he have this ministry? First, I want you to remember the basis for God's judgment on Israel in the first place. Going back to the introductory chapters, what is the basis or the reason for God bringing judgment against Israel according to Isaiah at this stage of their relationship? What is it they've done or under what terms does God have need to bring judgment against Israel? They broke the law. They broke the old covenant. And I'm going to use a term that's not exactly accurate, but it's easier to understand. If you think of the covenant like a contract, and I'm not saying they're equivalent, but they're close, it would be like God had a contract with Israel, they broke the contract, He has a grievance against them for breaking the contract, and the contract stipulated what God could do to them if they broke the contract. And so, according to Isaiah, they have broken the contract, God is now going to do His part under the contract. He's going to keep His part of the deal, even if they didn't keep theirs. So, the basis for God's judgment here. And therefore, the basis for God saying, I'm going to do all these things to Israel, like he just said in chapter 6, is because they violated the Old Covenant. And therefore, God is obligated by his own word to carry out the judgment that he said he would when they violated the covenant. And Isaiah's ministry, remember, is this formal indictment. Remember how chapter 1 started? This indictment against Israel. It's like a legal proceeding. You did this, I've got to do what I've got to do as the righteous judge. That's where the significance of this vision happening in the year of King Uzziah's death comes into play in a very intriguing way. The year of Uzziah's death also happens to be, not coincidentally, the year that Rome was founded. And God, in this moment, as Isaiah is receiving this vision, is turning this massive page in human history. From a time of David and Solomon and Uzziah, men who followed after the Lord to some degree, and established a kingdom through Israel that was the chief kingdom of its day, but in their sin under the Old Covenant, God is about to judge them, and He's going to use Gentile nations to do that. And at this moment, we know Assyria is starting to kick up dust in the northern part of their world and, and, express, and showing its power just in stages, soon to be 
taken over by Babylon, who will then be taken over by the Alexandrian Empire, and that will give way to the Roman Empire at its zenith. But on this day, this particular day, in this particular year, God is establishing Rome as he's taking down Uzziah and starting a ministry through Isaiah, which will proclaim this whole plan of work that God is initiating through the Gentile nations. So Isaiah is, in a sense, right at the beginning in his own personal ministry, while the world is suddenly just flipping on its head according to God's sovereign power so that he can carry out a judgment that he promised he would have to carry out if they did not keep the terms of the Old Covenant. God is preparing to usher in the times of the Gentiles, which we know ultimately leads to what? What concludes the times of the Gentiles? The second coming of Christ. So in the book of Isaiah, there is this equal mix of judgment and blessing, The judgment will all take place through a series of events we call the age of the Gentiles, times of the Gentiles. And all the blessings await the next phase, which is the Messianic kingdom that comes after this times of the Gentiles. So he's got these two big periods of time that are stuck up against each other. They start right now in God's providence. But there's a loophole in how God brings about all this judgment. It's my own term. I don't know if anybody's ever used it. There is a loophole in God's covenant to Israel, the Mosaic Covenant, a loophole that takes effect at a certain point in history, at the point where these two two ages butt up against one another. I want to show you that loophole tonight because it will explain a lot of what Isaiah is going to show you through the course of his entire book. To do that, I first need to take you to Deuteronomy chapter 28. We're not going to read the whole chapter. I want you to just see it in front of you as I describe some things that are in it. For the sake of time, we just have to do it this way. Make notes if you care to, and you can go back and look at the chapter as a whole for yourself later. Deuteronomy, the last book of the Pentateuch of the Torah, the final book of what Moses wrote, this end of Deuteronomy is the place where the law is codified, written out, and about to be officially signed and sealed, if you will, the way the contract is signed. Moses speaking in verse 1. Let me just read you the first two verses of Deuteronomy 28. He says to Israel, now, it shall be if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth and all these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. And then he lists a bunch of blessings. Sounds like a contract, doesn't it? In fact, there's 12 verses of blessings listed for the nation of Israel, if they do what? Notice what the requirement is in order to receive the blessing. There's two things here that are important. It's all Israel. So it's like the the team where if one guy on the team doesn't do his job, you lose the game. If one person in Israel doesn't meet these terms, the whole nation falls with that one person. It's an all or nothing contract with a nation, not with individuals. There was not the case here that two million individual Jews sat down in front of God one after another and said, gee, do I want to be in the Old Covenant or not? No, I think I'm not going to be. And the next guy sat down and said, you know, I think I will be. It was the nation represented by their leadership, Moses in particular, standing before God in the mountain and all of them at one voice saying, we do or we don't. Like a nation when you vote for president. I don't care whether you voted for the one we have now or not, he's your president. Same thing going on here, in a way, in a sense. Twelve verses of blessing. But if you notice, how long is the chapter... How many verses? 68 verses. From verse 15, which is where the, cur- the blessings stop, look at verse 15. But, that's a very important word. If you're reading in a contract and there's a but somewhere in the contract, you want to pay attention to what follows after that. It shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe, look, all commandments. You can't just do most of them. You can't violate any of them. Right? So, Now he says in verse 15, If you do not obey all that his commandments and the statutes with which I charge you today, all these curses will come about you and overtake you. And now notice, they go from that point to the end of the chapter. 53 verses of curses compared to 12 of blessing. Now I'm not saying that there is potentially more curse than blessing just because the verses are numbered differently. I'm simply illustrating the fact that there is a lot of curses. Now the blessings can be great too, of course. But there's a lot of curses. Now, there's a question here that has an obvious answer. I assume obvious. Could Israel ever succeed in meeting these terms? It's impossible for humans in their power as sinful human beings to do this. It would be impossible for one of the nation of Israel to do this, much less the entire nation. And remember, 
This is not just those in the presence of God in this moment. It was, a, it was the nation as it exists eternally. So even if all of this generation were able to do it, as impossible as that is, if one of their kids or grandkids failed, then all the curses have to be applied. Now, can God decide he's not going to do what he said in, these, in his word? His word does not go out and return to him void. What he said must happen. He doesn't change his mind. He didn't say, maybe I'll do some of these. I have, the, I have the opportunity, I have the right. You know, no, he says, I will. Then in chapter 29, just turn to chapter 29. Moses kind of summarizes their situation as they prepare to enter into the covenant formally. Verse 29, verse, or chapter 29, verse 1, he says, These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the sons of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant which he made with them at Horeb. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all his servants and all his land, the great trials which your eyes have seen, those great signs and wonders. Now look at verse 4. Yet to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. Now that sounds awfully familiar, doesn't it? Despite all that had happened to them coming out of Egypt, which if you think about it, that means going through the Red Sea, that means the plagues. I mean, you would think that would be enough, right? We always said that to ourselves. Gosh, if I had been one of those people walking through all of that, you wouldn't have seen me grousing about not having meat to eat. God says, despite all that's happened to you, He says, He has not yet given you the capacity to follow Him truly. God isn't ready yet for you to follow Him truly, apparently. So in Deuteronomy 29, Moses goes on to relate how they will break the covenant and what will happen to them because they're going to break the covenant. This has always been the thing that amazes me the most about all that goes on in this moment. It's not so much the, the magnitude of what's being said or any of the details. It's this one scene where Moses says, okay, right now, before you sign the covenant, I want to let you know what's going to happen. You're going to break it and here's all the bad things that are going to happen to you. You would think that might make you think twice in that moment about going forward. They go forward. So it's just an amazing thing to me that they hear these words. It's like they don't hear them. Deuteronomy 29, if you read through it, I'm not going to, he relates how they're going to break the covenant, they're going to be scattered, and they're going to be judged for their disobedience under the covenant. He just lays it out for them in advance. Then in Deuteronomy 30, he describes a coming redemption. Now I'm going to read a few verses out of 30. Verse 1. So it shall be, when all these things have come, come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you. <laughs> they're already talking about how they've been banished. And you return to the Lord your God and obey Him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today. You and your sons. Well, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity, have compassion on you, gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there He will bring you back. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed. You shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Moreover, the Lord your God will, look at this, circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. The Lord your God will inflict all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you, who persecute you. You shall again obey the Lord and observe all His commandments which I command you today. If you, if you see this in its setting, chapter 28, chapter 29, chapter 30, if you see it all play out as one continuous conversation, then it's apparent in the way Moses spoke that as he looked at them today, he said, the Lord your God has not given you eyes to hear and ears to hear and, and a heart to obey. But in a future day, He will. And in that future day, you notice at the end of verse 8, you're going to have the capacity to observe all His commandments which I command you today. Folks, what would it require that they could keep, effectively keep the law perfectly? What does it say about someone who's in a position to do that? They're without sin. They're in some kind of state or situation in which sin is no longer a possibility. Because we know in a normal earthly existence, that ain't happening for anybody. But for them, apparently because this heart of circumcised heart takes place, because of something that God does, they will now have the capacity to follow Him truly and entirely, not just them, you notice, but their descendants, everybody. Pretty remarkable scene. Wonder where that's going to happen. I wonder how God's going to get them to that point. It appears as though He's saying, you're entering into a covenant which you don't have the hope to keep, 
And in fact, because you're not going to keep it, all these bad things are going to happen to you. But I'm not going to forget you. I'm going to gather you out from the judgment that you have coming, bring you back into the land, and put you in a status, in a situation, in a kind of existence now, a new life, a new beginning, as a new creature, in such a way that you will now keep this covenant. And then, because you are keeping it, what can happen after that? The blessings. All the blessings that only come if you keep it perfectly will start when you're keeping it perfectly. And not because you figured out how to do it, but because I made you capable of doing it. When he says circumcise your heart, what does that bring to mind? What part of Scripture? Jeremiah 31, 31. If you don't know it, I'll read it. 31, 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. You notice how he compares this new one to the one he gave before? He says, I'm going to make another one with them, different than the one I made with them when they were at the mountain. He says, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. And then moving on, he says, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Now, what is he referring to? Those days. I'm going to make a covenant with them after those days. The days of what? What would you just take out of the verses I just read? He says, I'm going to make a covenant with them different than the one I made with their fathers in the day I took them out. But he says, this covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, but after those days. So this new covenant is one he makes with Israel after the days of them breaking his old covenant. All these days in which they are still technically under the old covenant and breaking it and being judged for it, after those days they will come into a new covenant. And he says, this is what the new covenant does for them in verse 33. He says, I will put my law within them and on their heart. I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So Jeremiah speaks about this day in the future when God puts his law right on their heart in such a way that they can't help but keep it because it's a part of who they are now. We call that a circumcision of the heart in other places of Scripture. That is the moment of regeneration. We've talked about this already in here. When does this moment actually occur? We went to one, we've talked about it. I've not taken you there in this class, I don't believe. But it's where in that timeline I've described do you see what is being described here, a moment when all Israel now has come to a new understanding in their heart that brings them to a, a complete and total acceptance of God and a 100% obedience of the covenant. We've talked a little about this. I'll show you some of that actually tonight. That brings us to the loophole, what I mean when I say loophole. God, in a very interesting way, He added a little promise stuck off in the corners of the Old Covenant in an earlier chapter in Leviticus. And it's a little promise that he inserts almost as an aside. And it obligates only himself. And it obligates himself to bring Israel the blessings of this covenant even if they have not met its terms in their own power. It's in Leviticus chapter 26. Look at verse 39 of chapter 26 of Leviticus. Now, this is sounding at the beginning here very similar to what he's been saying in Deuteronomy. He's talking about what will happen to them if they break the covenant. Verse 39, you see the very end of a list of bad things that are going to happen. It says, So those of you who may be left, that's the remnant again, will rot away because of their iniquity in the lands of your enemies, and also because of the iniquities of their forefathers, they will rot away with them. But now look at verse 40. If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers, that's an interesting phrase, in their unfaithfulness which they committed against me, and also in their acting with hostility against me, I was acting with hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies, or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled so that they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. And I will remember also my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham as well. And I will remember the land. For the land will be abandoned by them and will make up for its Sabbaths while it is made desolate without them. They, meanwhile, will be making amends for their iniquity. 
See that? They'll be making amends for their iniquity because they rejected my ordinances and their soul abhorred my statutes. So he's saying, I'm going to let the land rest while I kick them out. And meanwhile, their departure and scattering will be them making amends for their violation under the old covenant. But then he says, yet, in spite of this, in spite of this, when they are in the land of the enemies, I will not reject them, nor will I so abhor them as to destroy them, breaking my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But I will remember for them the covenant with their ancestors whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. Now, break it out and you'll see what he's saying. He says, if they confess their sin and the sin of their forefathers, what does that refer to? What does it mean to confess the sin of your forefathers? I confess all the bad things Dad did? And then his dad? And then, I mean, how far do you go? How much time do you have? What does it mean to confess the sin of your forefathers? How could you even list them all? It could be in a general sense to the Mosaic Code, but it goes a little deeper than that because of one phrase he adds. He says, and in their acting with hostility against me. When did Jews, the nation of Israel, ever act in hostility directly against God? When they crucified him. When they crucified him. The thing they're being asked to confess here is not merely their iniquity in the simple sense of, forgive me, Father, today, for I have sinned. They are confessing the sin of Israel against God in his delivering of a Messiah to them, which they turned against. That's the sin of the forefathers of Israel, which immediately says that God is describing a moment here that has to be after the crucifixion, right? He's saying at a point where Israel will confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers when they were acting in hostility against me, that's a scene that must take place after the crucifixion somewhere in history. When that happens, whenever that is, he says what in verse 42? I will remember what? The terms of the old covenant? No. I will remember a different covenant. In other words, God says... I've got a covenant I'm entering into you right now that says if you perform well, I give you a blessing. If you don't perform well, I give you cursing. But oh, by the way, there's a loophole. If you in a moment as a nation, remember, not just one individual, it has to be the nation. If the nation confesses to me their iniquity, that they have sinned, that they are in need of redemption, and the iniquity of the forefathers who committed the sin of putting Christ to death on the cross, I will, what does he say? Remember that I made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which in that covenant I committed to raising up a land for Abraham's descendants, a land which would be blessed by my presence and would stand as chief nation above all others on the earth. In other words, the promises that we know come to bear in the messianic kingdom, the millennial kingdom. He says, because of that promise I made to Abraham, I will be faithful to that promise. That's what he means in verse 44 when he says, I will not reject them or break my covenant with them. He's talking here about breaking the Abrahamic covenant. I will not break that covenant with them. And then he says, in the uncircumcision of their heart, they come to me in this way, I will forgive them. So in other words, how do you get the blessings of the old covenant? By keeping the law perfectly? Well, that's one way. How's that working for you? Okay, not so good. But there's a loophole. You get all the blessings if you'll simply confess your iniquity. You want to know when that happens? I've talked about it here a couple times. Let me read you where it happens. In Zechariah 12, 8. Zechariah 12 is a description of the very end of tribulation. He's already described, by the time you get to verse 8, he's already described the situation of the day, Israel, in Jerusalem, all the other nations of the world, aligned against them and attacking them under the leadership of the Antichrist. So you have the world against Israel, and from a human point of view, in that dire moment, it looks like all is lost for Israel. There's no hope that they could stand off the armies of the world by themselves. And then in verse 8, we hear this, Zechariah 12:8. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David. What is David famous for in battle? Defeating who? Goliath, right? And the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. So supernaturally, God defends Israel while they're under this attack. And then in verse 9, And in that day I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. But look what he does right before he accomplishes that. Before he sends Christ down and Christ destroys these armies upon his return. Right before that happens in verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. Why? 
so that they will look on me whom they've pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. And then he goes on to describe how it happens. Each family by itself, he says multiple times. Meaning, it's not some kind of group revival, mass hysteria. It's people in their own homes, one at a time, in their little private setting, all simultaneously coming to this same appreciation, which tells you it's God at work. The Spirit, pour it out. Why does God pour His Spirit out on Israel in that moment? Well, so that they will look upon Him whom they have pierced. So they will have an instant supernaturally derived recognition that Christ, the one their fathers, the forefathers were acting in malice against, was actually their Savior. And as they come to that recognition in that moment, they think, oh my goodness, we we were responsible for the death of our Messiah. Oh, we wish that never happened. We wish we could be forgiven for that sin in our past. I mean, I don't know what words they're using. And in response to that, if you jump to chapter 14 of Zechariah, for your own sake, I'll I'll just leave it for you to look at, you see the description of Jesus' return. He comes because they do this, and His coming is to save them and set up His kingdom. Why is He coming to set up His kingdom and save them? Because God said in Leviticus 26, if they confess these things, God will save them and bring them the blessings of the Old Covenant. Why didn't He do it earlier? Why didn't He do it in Isaiah's day? Why is He waiting for Zechariah 12? Because, as He told Isaiah, don't let them hear right now. Don't let them see right now. I'm going to keep my covenant of judgment against them first. I'm going to be true to my word, which is, if you fail in this covenant, I bring these judgments. There's one other really, really big obvious reason why God has waited or does wait so long to bring about this moment when he can finally bring the blessings to Israel. It's the Gentiles. Paul says it easiest, clearest in Romans, right? Romans chapter 11. In verse 7 he says, trying to explain why it is that Israel did not receive their Messiah in the day that he came. Paul says in chapter 11, verse 7, What then? Meaning, what do we conclude? What Israel is seeking, meaning God and God's righteousness and the Messiah, it has not obtained... But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. That means those who were chosen refers to Israel. Some of Israel, those within Israel, like Paul himself, who were granted awareness of Christ, received that blessing, but the rest of Israel were hardened, not permitted to know who their Lord was. Just as it is written, look what he quotes to prove this. He quotes Deuteronomy 29, God gave them a a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, and a stumbling block, and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not, and bend their backs forever. And then Paul asks the question, well, they didn't stumble so as to fall, did they? In other words, the point of this isn't to destroy them, is it? And then he says, may it never be. But by their transgression, what transgression? Specifically the transgression of rejecting the Messiah. But that in itself really is just a part of a larger issue, right? Their transgression under the Old Covenant is what set up the whole thing, right? It's what started the whole problem. Their transgression generally, their sin in other words, as well as specifically their rejection of the Messiah, by that transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. And then he goes on to say in verse 26 that Israel will be saved. There is yet still a future day when God will bring about the blessings. And then in verse 28, from the standpoint of the Gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of their fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, well, so these also now have been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, they may also be shown mercy. The ministry of Isaiah is to come and announce this changing of the guard, the coming judgment, God's swinging of the the fence, if you will, into a new era, in which Israel will find itself on the outs and Gentiles will be on top of them, that continues to today. We're still living in the time Isaiah set about to produce or to talk through. But he's also going to balance that with a message that's equally strong of how God will eventually bring blessing to Israel. Let's close tonight in prayer. Father, I I thank you, Father, that you were able to guide me through the teaching tonight and open my eyes to things as well and give me clear voice. I thank You as well, Father, that there would be ears to hear and hear tonight. How blessed are we that for Your chosen people, wherever they may be today, You have held them at bay. Their ears are still closed in many cases. And yet, 
Those who are not your people, Father, those like us in this room, can be called your children, for you have opened our ears. Thank you for that blessing, Father. Lord, we thank you for the teaching opportunity tonight and the chance to learn so much. We pray it could be uh, useful to us in our walk and, and give us opportunity to witness more clearly to others. Father, we pray that you would use us mightily as you open our eyes and ears to important things that we would understand that to whom much is given, much is expected, and we ask for opportunity, Father, to serve you in mighty ways. Let us come back next week and to continue in this study according to your will. In Jesus' name, amen.